We are beginning a new sermon series this week uh, that is entitled Basic Training. And in it, we are going to take a look at some of the basic tenets of our faith, uh, some of the mysteries of our faith, and maybe how they hang together, but we're going to look at the basics of our faith. I think it's important that we on occasion go back and, and focus on the fundamentals of our faith. I mean, if you look, every sports team in the world does some period of time where they're focusing on the fundamentals, the basics. I mean, there's baseball has spring training, football has two-a-days, basketball has their summer leagues and their camps. It's important that we understand the basics, the fundamentals of our faith. In addition to that, we are a growing congregation. And we have people that are newly baptized and people that are grizzled veterans, maybe even former clergy. But even then, I think it is valuable for us to spend a little time looking at the basics of our faith. Today, the mystery that we are going to talk about is the Trinity. Three in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In this series, we'll also take a look at salvation. We'll talk about the nature of Jesus. We'll talk about the nature of the sacraments and the mystery that is there. And we'll talk about the nature of the church and how that works. We'll be taking a look at the basics. So can anyone tell me in Scripture where it says that God is three in one, that God is triune, not there. It's not there. But the fact is that, that the idea of God being triune has been worked out over time by the early church fathers. This is the definition of triune, being three in one, used especially as the Christian Trinity, a triune God. I've really never heard the word triune used any other way except to describe God. I've never, never heard it used in a sentence other than describing God. Just want to make sure that we all are understanding what triune means. Three in one. So, so let, let me remind you what has happened in early Christianity. So I'm going to kind of nerd out and get in some history for you. So we talked last week about sort of the followers of Jesus for the Jews were sort of the crazy uncle that they didn't like to talk about. Well, over time, over a couple of hundred years, Christianity grew significantly and it spread throughout the kingdom. And we remember the stories of the martyrs and the persecution of Christians and they were put in the arena and, and fed to animals and made to fight bulls and those sorts of things. That had been happening. And what had happened is Christianity was really kind of sort of regionally subdivided. Some people claimed we're followers of Mark. Some said we're followers of Matthew. Some said we're followers of Thomas. Some said we're followers of John. And so Christianity was very segmented at the time. 
One of the sort of hot spots for the earliest theology, the earliest church fathers to work was Alexandria. And there were two early church fathers that were there. One was Arius, the other one was Athanasius. And they were trying to work out the relationship of the son, S-O-N, not the one in the sky, to the father. And Arius made this claim that God created the son. So if Arius had a bumper sticker, it would say there was a time when the son was not. He claimed that God made Jesus, made the son, and was by having been made is thereby inferior to God the Father. Athanasius, on the other hand, was, was making the argument that no, they're co-eternal. Father and son are the same. And it was really quite the battle between Arius and Athanasius. And so about the time that this argument really got going really well, an extraordinary thing happened. The emperor at the time was Constantine. And remember, Christianity, they'd been persecuted, and they were a hodgepodge all over the place. And Constantine was in a battle, in a fight, and he was at the Milvian Bridge, and he was outnumbered about two to one. Constantine the emperor had a vision, and the vision came to him, and it was described as Jesus came to him in a vision and told him, conquer under this sign and you will win. And the sign was the Cairo. Cairo, the first two letters of Christus, of Christ. So Constantine in this battle in 312 had these painted on the shields of his soldiers and he won. So it, he becomes a convert to Christianity. The emperor becomes a convert. His mother, Helena, was already a follower. So the emperor becomes a Christian. There's debates about exactly when Constantine became a Christian. But in 313, he issued the Edict of Milan, which basically said Christianity is acceptable and we will no longer persecute the Christians. And so as a new Christian, he looks out and he sees this hodgepodge of, of theology and all of this sort of mess. And, and so he calls a conference of all the bishops of all the churches around. It was in 325 and it was the Council of Nicaea. It's where we get our Nicaean Creed. I'll share that with you sometime. We'll, I'll make you say that one instead of the Apostles' Creed someday. But one of the big things that they accomplished at Nicaea was this idea that the Son and the Father were co-eternal. The word that they came up for with it, and I believe it to be a made-up word as we theologians tend to do from time to time, is homoousius. We should have a slide for that, I think. It's the word homo, which means, oh, I messed you up. It's my bad, Dave. 
We'll get to homoousius in a minute. Let me go back to the scripture. So that's what happens at the, at the Council of Nicaea. So let's go back to scripture and see where we can puzzle out this trinity, this triune nature of God. So if we look first at the Gospel of John in the 14th chapter, we get a pretty good understanding of the relationship of the Father and the Son. So Jesus says this, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. Anybody ever been a Philip? Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, but if you do not, then believe in me because of the works themselves. And later in that chapter, we get a look at the Holy Spirit. I have said these things to you while I am still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and remind you of all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, but do not let them be afraid. So in, in this text from John, we get a pretty good idea of the relationship to the Father and the Son. He's in me, I am in him. Um, and of course, we know that John begins in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Well, the Word in this case is Jesus, is the Word. So and then 25 through 27, we get, get a uh, sort of a description of the Holy Spirit, right? It's going to teach us. It's going to remind us of Jesus' teachings. It's going to inspire us. It's going to help lead us. Crystal clear, right? How all that works? Not for me. It remains a mystery to me. And then another text that, that people point to that say this is evidence of, of the Trinity, of the triune nature of God, is Genesis 1.26. God says, let us make man, let us make humankind in our image. And a lot of people point to this, what's called the royal we, as evidence that it was Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the beginning of creation. So where did the idea of God being triune come up? It got worked out. It got worked out by our early church fathers. Because it's kind of a mystery how it all works. And at this first council in Nicaea, they, they really worked at the relationship of the Father and the Son. And as I was telling you, I got ahead of Dave. Um, they came up with this word homoousius, which homo means same, ousius means substance. 
They're the same. And so they're denying this claim of Arius that, that somehow the Son is lesser than, that the Son was made by the Father. And it's part of the Nicene Creed. It's part of what we believe. But that's kind of where it stopped there at the Council of Nicaea. So we, we don't have our triune, our trinity is not complete yet. We've got the Father and His Son. We all agree that, that this, that they're the same, that they're one and the same. But, but we haven't yet gotten to the Holy Spirit. So it's a, con- it's a, a conference at Constantinople in 381, in which the Holy Spirit is judged to be the same. I want to go back to a scripture. It's a place where we see the whole of the Trinity together. And it's in the Synoptic Gospels, and it's at the baptism of Jesus. And I'm reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, 9 through 11. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you I am well pleased. So in this text, we we get to see two of the three, and we hear from the third. We hear from the Father. And and so it is at this council of Constantinople that the Holy Spirit is added, and and the Trinity is complete. Our faith in God is complete. So, So now we know the doctrine. The understanding that God is three in one. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-equal. So who believes that? Who believes that God is triune? Basically every Christian church in the world. The Eastern Orthodox, the Russian Orthodox, the Roman Catholic Church, the Baptist, all the Protestants, we all claim this triune nature of God. Who doesn't believe it? Well, the Jehovah's Witness don't believe that God is triune. The Mormons don't believe that our God is a trinity, triune in nature. Of course, the Unitarians, they don't believe in a triune God because they're their own little gods, right? And you really want to make a Muslim scratch his head? You tell him that our God is triune, that there's three of them. You try to tell a Muslim that our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and of course they believe there is one God, and that one God is Allah, right? And so you want to make them scratch their head. You say, yeah, but Allah is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're like, "Uh uh-uh, I can count, that's three. You're a multi-theist. But this is a basic claim of our faith, that God is triune 
and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I would love to tell you I understand exactly how this works because I've studied it lots. I've talked about it lots. And I have to tell you, it remains a mystery to me of exactly how it works. And for you engineers out there, I'm sorry, you gotta suck it up and just have a little faith. You know what though? I love, I love that I serve a God that is so big, we can't really understand exactly how he works. I love that there is an element of mystery in my faith, and mystery in the sense that I don't fully understand how it works. Our God is that big. And let me remind you what we're trying to do here. We are trying to use human vocabulary to describe the maker of the universe. By its very nature, we are limited. We're limited in our ability to comprehend. We are even limited in our ability to try to talk about it and describe it. You literally are using human vocabulary to describe the undescribable. That's how big our God is. And I love that my God is so big that I don't fully <coughs> understand. And in talking about ways to understand the Trinity, um, you might see the triangle, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one, right? Um, sometimes we talk about water as a way to talk about the Trinity. You, you can have steam, you can have ice, and you can have liquid water. All of it is H2O. And then sometimes we talk about the apple as being an example. And all of those break down at some point because they can be separated. You can separate H2O, you can separate apple into parts. The Trinity cannot. The Trinity cannot be separated. So, but I won't get too much into whole modalism and nerd out with you on all of the arguments about the Trinity and how it works. You know, I think for me, I think the very best understanding of how the Trinity work really comes from our own life. If you stop and think about it, we experience God the Father as the Creator. We experience God the Son as the Redeemer, and we experience God the Holy Spirit as the Sustainer. Sometimes you hear the Trinity referred to as Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer. A lot of church fathers have written about this, and, and one of my very favorite early church fathers is, is a man named Gregory of Nyssa. And he writes this about the Holy Spirit. Therefore then, observing the various activities of the transcendent power of from each of the activities of God known to us, we fit together the names. 
we experience God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit as creator, redeemer, sustainer. We talked about Genesis 1.26, and God says, let us create humankind in our image. And I've shared this with you before. I think part of what it means for us to be made in the image of God is our need to be in community with one another. If you look at how the Trinity functions, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they, they commune together, they are one. And we as humans, we have a need to be in community with others. And so I am Mike. I am pastor, I am hunter, I'm a sailor, I'm a father, I'm a brother, I'm a son, I'm a grandpa. So all of these people in my life experience me as all of those, right? But still, I am Mike. And so we get to experience the Trinity. We get to experience how God works in our lives as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And look, I've already told you God is bigger than we can really understand. So we may experience God in some other ways too. But as Christians, we hold on to this idea that our God is three in one. So with the names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we experience the fullness of one true God. The fact that we talk about it as three in one, it's a mystery. It's really a mystery as to how it works. And it's not until we have the opportunity to ask God face to face how it works that I think we'll really understand it. But this is a basic tenet of our faith. We experience God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The workings of our triune God will remain a mystery till such a time as we have the knowledge of seeing God face to face. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a basic tenet of our faith, a holy mystery for us to struggle with and try to learn from. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the mystery of our faith. We thank you for all the ways that you work in our life, in the life of the church, and in the world. Father, you have given us so much, and we just ask that you would let us be a beacon of your grace in the world to see. Let us be a beacon of love for people to experience your love through us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.